Dun dun da da dun dun. We are back. Being the door. Hold the door. Hold the door. We're back. Being thrown in, everyone. Hold the door. Hold door. You guys, we got an episode for you. But first, let's get into the Wikipedia plot, shall we? So, in Bravos, Jockin offers Arya the assignment of killing an actress named Lady Crane who is playing Cersei in a play recounting the War of the Five Kings. While observing the play, Arya is noticeably distressed by the play's portrayal of her late father Ned Stark as a bumbling oaf. In the Dothraki Sea, Jor reveals his grayscale to Daenerys. He admits his love for her, and Daenerys orders him to find a cure and return to her so he can be by her side when she conquers Westeros. In Marine, Tyrion and Varys note the tentative peace has fallen over Marine since they forged their pact with the Masters. To preserve this, Tyrion summons the Red Priestess Kinvara who agrees to preach to the people that Daenerys is the chosen one of the Lord of Light. She also claims to know what originally happened to Varys and why unnerving the eunuch. In the Iron Iron Islands, at the King's Moot, Yara makes her claim to the Salt Throne. When Theon supporting her claim, their uncle Euron arrives to stake his own claim. Yara accuses him of killing their father. To her surprise, Euron freely admits to it, declaring that Balaam was leading the Ironborn to ruin. He promises to conquer Westeros by marrying Daenerys and offering her the Iron Fleet. He is subsequently chosen as king. Theon and Yara, realizing Euron will have them put to death, flee with the best ships of the Iron Fleet. Undaunted, Euron orders the Ironborn to begin construction of a new, better fleet. At the Wall, Sansa confronts Littlefinger about his decision to marry Ramsay. He explains he was ignorant of Ramsay's cruelty and begs for forgiveness. In exchange, he offers her the support of the Vale in her attempt to Retake Winterfell from the Boltons, but Sansa declines. Littlefinger reveals that her great uncle, the Blackfish, has retaken River Run with Tully with the Tully army. After he leaves, Sansa orders Bran to go and recruit Blackfish for their cause. John, Sansa, and Davos discuss about attacking Winterfell and depart to various castles in the north for soldiers with Melisandre, Bran, Podrick, and Tormund. Beyond the wall, Bran and the Three-Eyed Raven observe a vision of the Children of the Forest, creating the Night King by impaling one of the first men with the dragon-class dagger. Bran subsequently confronts Leaf about creating the White Walkers. She explains that they were at war with the First Men and had no choice. Later, Bran decides to observe a vision without the Three-Eyed Raven. He witnesses a massive army of whites led by the Night King who touches him whilst in the vision. Bran awakens to find the mark where he was touched, and the Three-Eyed Raven warns that he must leave, as the Night King is now able to find them and enter into the cave. The Three-Eyed Raven begins transferring knowledge to Bran as the army of the whites arrives. While in a vision of Winterfell, Bran hears the cries of Mira, who is trying to save Bran's body, while the children hold back the whites. The three-eyed raven advises Bran to listen to her, and Bran splits his consciousness by remaining in the vision of the past while simultaneously controlling Hodor in the present. The Night King enters the cave and kills the three-eyed raven. As Bran, Mira, and Hodor make their escape, Leaf and Bran's direwolf, Summer, sacrifice themselves to hold back the whites. Hodor closes the hideout store behind them, keeping the whites inside. While Mira escapes with Bran, Mira repeatedly orders Hodor to hold the door shut while they flee, which results in the Whites tearing him apart. In the vision, Bran becomes overwhelmed by the split conscious and unintentionally enters the mind of Willis in the vision, forging a connection between the past and present. With Bran's unconscious inside his head, Willis suffers a seizure while hearing the echoes of Mira's orders and begins to yell the words, hold the door, repeatedly until they slur together to sound Hodor as a horrified and heartbroken Bran watches. You guys, what is this episode all about? What are we doing here? I don't even understand. But lucky for everyone, we have Brad and Lindsay here to help make sense of everything. Brad, Lindsay, welcome back to the show. Let's do it again. Hello, you beautiful man. Oh, stop. You beautiful people over there. Hey, buddy. How are we doing? Really well. Really well. Hey, before we start, we got to talk about something. Hit me. Jon Snow. Bro, he's back. <laughs> Bro. <laughs> <laughs> what is dead may never die. All right, that's it's there, man. It's there. It's real. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I got to tell you. So um, here's how I knew Lindsay was the one. Oh, <laughs> she took. So obviously I had been a. Uh, sulking a little bit since the red wedding right i just had questioned everything and you know wondered yeah i think i think we all you know some of us can align with the uh starks in some ways you know uh mm-hmm. 
and the red wedding, obviously it really cut, cut our hearts out in some ways. And I think it more um, slit our throats out, slit our yeah. throats. Thank you. That's the, that's yep. the, that's, that's what happened. The, the right thing. Um, so, I mean, I don't know about you, but of course, by this time I had been thinking, ah, it's gotta be Jon Snow, right? He's going to be, Oh, absolutely. Me. He's got, all. Was... is that where you're at right now, by the way? What do you mean? Let's go back to that. I'm sorry. So it's got to be Jon Snow, right? So yes, uh, it's got to be Jon Snow. That's why, like Daenerys had had faltered. Um, Jon is, you know, he's doing the best leadery things ever of like yeah. uniting uniting people together. And then when he gets killed, I'm like, what? What? He was on track. Yeah. He was on track. Yeah. So it was real mind mind blower, right? Yeah. So um, this is about the time when when I was watching it that we kind of slowed down because it started being really heavy and I had a lot to uh, consume and digest every time we watched an episode, you know, Lindsay, <laughs> right. wanted, Lindsay wanted to plow through them, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the sweet woman that she is, and, you know, she wanted me to plow. She was just so excited to show me all these things. And this is also a time she said, okay, we should probably watch the next ones sooner than later without tipping her hat at all. And, and yeah. I, no, no, no. I just, I got to recover from this one. This really hurts. Uh, how can the show even go on without Jon Snow? And to Lindsay's, Lindsay's credit, she held her secret about what eventually happened to Jon Snow for several weeks without wow. hand, without um, a, a wink or a nod to it at all. Um, <laughs> she really led me down the path. And It was borderline oh, patronizing. Like, oh. it was almost like... Are you gonna be okay without Jon Snow? Is this gonna be? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think she dug me a little bit, but she also didn't allow me to even have a a, a clue of what might happen. So, I think well, that was she, about the time I, I said I, I think uh, I think I probably better be thinking long term with this one. <laughs> I think I probably better marry her. She let me discover Jon Snow on my own. The yeah. all time romantic ploy. What a sweetheart! What a drew sweetheart! So just or she drew it up. It's more. It, it, I mean, that that story alone, we could get into a little bit philosophical. Of isn't that what we love about Jon Snow? Well, um, well, like like that he lets people. He wants to lead and wants people to come to their own conclusions about things. He doesn't want to force anyone to do anything, right? Yeah. And That's so nice of you, Nick. I was so Jon Snow with that. Yeah. Yes. I was so with lying <laughs> to my right. husband. <laughs> <laughs> the parallels are uncanny, right? <laughs> yes. So once again, you know, I mean, all the parallels, right? So here's here's a parallel with the uh, greatest theological story of all time, right? With his resurrection, uh, yeah. is he right. truly is he truly the uh, the Messiah, the chosen one here, right? Well, that's what it appears to be. And then it's like, although I kind of was just kind of thinking like, oh, they're going to marvel this thing. No one's actually dead. No one that you care about. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You would, you would hope that. Right. But no, uh, I mean, just this uh, amazing power that the, uh, it's really all the, the red woman show. and the you know, her, thing. yeah, that the, the, the the Lord of light, right? The Lord of light brought it back. So, uh, and we've talked about the theology a little bit. So it's kind of interesting to think, there's a convergence of theologies and what's the true theology and they each seem to have their own power. And obviously this red woman wields a tremendous amount of power. But we're starting to learn a little bit more about Ned Stark, which is interesting. Yeah. Cause there was that episode two episodes ago where they learned about that fight where he, uh, where he always had said that he'd want to fight, but really the dude was stabbed in the back. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know this, this is so, well, I'm just interested into, and maybe we'll, we'll, you can let me know when we get there, but why you guys wanted to talk about this episode. <laughs> okay. Cause I mean, there's a lot, I'm really, as I was watching it, I'm was thinking, I'm really glad that we're watching it or that I'm talking about it with you guys. Cause there's a lot to dissect. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, let's see. Yeah. Let's get thrown in here. Let's, let's check out, hold the door. Um, so it starts off with Baelish trying to dig himself out of the shithole he made with Sansa. And I love that Sansa didn't trust she's like, no, I don't trust you anymore, but we will get into what would happen with what she said later, but it was just, yeah, Baelish, finally, no one, no one bought your BS, right? Yeah, you're a criminal. You're yeah. just disgusting. Yeah, and we talked about it, how it seemingly he's the, he's the, uh, the pawn pusher, you know, kind of behind yeah. the pawn pusher, and 
he held a lot of cards, but uh, this is kind of the first time it's really blown up in his face in a way, you know. Uh, he still owns cards when he says your uncle Blackfish or whatever has an army that's loyal to you. He's still got cards to play. Right. It's, it's one of the most maddening scenes because you're so happy for Sansa who gets to literally claim her truth and say some really, really strong and important things about what happened to her. Um, which is really intense, just that idea in and of itself, like the trauma that she incurred and the fact that she's courageous enough to say, like, this is because of you and I hate you for it and I never want you to forget how I feel about this. And for his spineless ass to still, you know, (laughs) manipulate her and still, like, without even taking a breath, it just, you know, just shows his insincerity. And I think she knows you know, she knows that, but it still is just like, damn, he, little finger. Ugh. What does he say right at the end of their conversation? He says something about, are you going to tell your brother or something, right? Uh, can you tell Jon Snow? And really, like, kind of puts her to the test, her uh, her conscience to the test right even then and there. So he, he really does still hold a lot of cards, doesn't he? It's fr- like Lindsay said, it's maddening is what it is. It's so annoying. Yeah. yeah, that was like his only so, slip up. That was the only time where he might have been a little bit scared. Like, it's oh, it's shit, even more scared. maddening and more annoying than his overacting. I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm sorry From the bottom of my heart, I hope you forgive me, but I know that you won't. Yeah, go fuck yourself. Like, go. every single minute of every day. I hate you. Yeah. Yeah. Set the scene, though. Set the scene for a lot here. But yeah, I, I choose to champion Sansa in that moment. Like Littlefinger is who he is, but she's just she rallies that moment, and she's an absolute champion. And it shows so much about how strong she is. And it's really one of the first times she took control of anything. To tell you the truth, she'd always been a she'd always been sort of a a, a puppet of everybody, and including and especially Littlefinger, right? But it's the first time 100%. she really stood on her own ground in that moment. Yeah. So yeah. We, so yeah, we we're done on Sansa, and then we moved to to her sister with Arya. And I just can't understand why Arya can't beat this girl. This girl continues to wreck her and she can't like, <laughs> when is she going to learn? And then the girl's like, you're not going to be, you're never going to be one of us. And I'm starting to believe I kept me like, this girl's so stupid. And now I'm kind of like, well, this girl might be right. Is Arya ever going to get good enough? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, she's been, um, you know, the wave has been in for a long time. She's in deep. She's like fully in. And this is right. And I think yeah. she's just she's jealous. She's showing some jealousy too, which is like interesting for a, a faceless person. Uh, I think it, there's a lot to do with confidence in this case, right? Is uh, the way for, is she she has attained something that Arya really wants, but she just doesn't doesn't have the confidence to truly um, give herself to this faceless god, right? And um, so I think I think that has something to do with it, certainly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of silly. And yet Jockin still has this, the confidence in Arya, even though he kind of says the girl might have a point about that. She'll never be one of us. And then it says, you know, I'm giving Arya one more, another kill. And I just was right. Who does Arya need to kill now? Like who are, I kind of wonder who are all like, so is the faceless men, are they just a bunch of assassins basically? Like, is that, yeah. that's what it seems like they are. Seemingly, yeah. isn't that there's he tells the story, right? That once yeah, people, they were all assassins and once these were the faceless men and sort of Yes. Like, uh, that's the that's what, what it is, right? Right. And, and I wonder why oh. for, yeah, people come to them as hitmen. It's like, oh, this person I want this person to die, and then they kind of I think they justify it one way or the other, and if they agree they have some theology it, behind yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, right. Which we we'll get into because so then Arya goes and looks at this play, which I'm just like so confused. Like, what is going on with this play? And what's Arya doing in the audience? At one point, I thought, is this like a flashback? And then I was like, oh no, they're portraying, you know, what happened with the death of Robert Baratheon. Yeah, this but is their entertainment. I, right, but then I noticed some interesting ways. Uh, um, you know, it looks like Joffrey is forgiving, not the cruel monster, right? And then they blame, it looks like they blame Ned's death on Tyrion. Like Tyrion paid off the guy to kill him anyway. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what and, happened. And Ned, Ned's a near uh, insolent. He's nearly an idiot in their portrayal oh, as well. A, he's a complete idiot, right? And I'm just, and, and so I'm like, why? I wonder why the history is being 
told this way. And it just, you know, that, that screams to present day stuff with, you know, what kind of information do we listen to? Do, where do we get our news from and what do we trust and who's forming the narrative? And like, I've never been more out of a distrust for what to believe or what's going on in the world as we see Russia going to war with Ukraine. And then it's like, Oh, there are peace treaties. And also Russia is arming its nuclear forces. I'm like, wait, what is going on here? What's happening? And so that, so it's kind of interesting that that's going on. Um, um, and, and but it's also a testament, like Jockin, as much as he's just given her, he must have a soft spot for her for Arya he right? because right. he's given her several opportunities, and he's even mentioned it. But now he's really putting her to the test. Like, can she do this when the person is, um, you know, part seemingly interwoven with the story or has adopted the story of her life, something that she's seen, you know? Uh, yeah. Or is she? Or is Jockin giving her a layup? knowing that this person is portraying her number one enemy. That's right. Someone that's on her list. He knows her list already, right? She divulged right. list to him early on. So That's interesting. I never thought of it that angle because what I got, it, it was a little bit, I saw it twisted a little bit where she was saying like, Ario needs to kill this Lady Crane woman. And I didn't even think it was, she was portraying Cersei, which is, that's obvious. That's obvious now that you pointed out. I hate when things are obvious after they're told to me. I can't stand how stupid I am. Especially you two. Cause I'm just like, Oh, that's what that means. Oh, okay. And so, cause what I saw was like, Arya was almost saying like, why does what, she seems like a nice person? You know, the, the other girl, she's envious of her almost like maybe this, we're killing the wrong person. We should kill the person who's envious. Right. Cause that's a, a, a sin or whatever. And this goes to, and and I really like Jockin here. He goes, does death only come for the wicked and leave the kind behind? And it's like, right, right. so jo- Jockin's even almost like admitting like, yeah, this is a good person, but she's marked for death and we don't ask questions. We just do it. And he even says a servant does not ask questions. And I'm kind of thinking like, but don't we need to ask questions? Isn't that kind of an important part of what we do? Um, if we just, you know, blindly go along, we, I, there's so much later into this where it's, we're like, yeah, sometimes you do just need to do what you're told because you need to trust the powers above. But if you, but if you never question the powers above, then you get into some real messy stuff. Like what's the fine line to balance here? And I thought this was kind of interesting. One of your guys' take on it. Right. And I think that's when you find out Jockin he alludes to it just being purely transactional and it's not his place to question someone who paid him already. And, you know, it turns out that it's the young envious girl who, you know, likely we can infer that it's the young envious girl who pays her off. So that, yeah, that has nothing to do with, um, it's just that we've been paid or we've been, you know, we've been told or whatever the case may be that this is how it's gotta be. So it's gotta be, you start breaking business ties, then, um, then we change the whole paradigm, you know? Yeah. And and that's the bottom line of this, of this religion of, of the faceless, you know, the faceless uh, people, the many faced God is when we first meet Jockin, he says, a man will give you three lives. And no, I mean, he doesn't hesitate at all. She names, Arya names three people and Jockin eliminates them. That's true. No questions. He has no questions. I think that speaks to kind of this specific sect, right? Of like, you, you cannot be attached to these people. You cannot find connection you can't and asking questions means that there's a connection and to have a connection means you you are a person and the whole point of being one of these faceless men is to be able to do the job and the job is to do it without question and if yeah, you this have is the mark human connections you have questions and that's and yeah she's really being tested for sure up until now i um you know i always sort of like I recognize the themes of each of these cities, right? Mirren and um, King's Landing. And there, there seemed to be a theme involved with them, you know? And I thought, that's really weird that uh, there'd be this theological faceless God <laughs> society in this city of economics, right? Uh, where the yeah. gold was, yeah, and, and Bravos. And now I'm starting to realize just the transactional nature of this, that they're simply just a... Uh, you know, an organized crime ring themselves just operating under economics. <laughs> yes. it turns out. Right. With a, with a theological uh, a shield that they hide behind, perhaps, you know? That, right. That's what I was going to say. Like, how much killing is done in the name of God? So it's like, well, it's justified. 
you know, some crazy shit with masks and faces and bodies and stuff. Oh, very right, very dishonest way of killing. You know, like Ned. Ned, you know, <laughs> when he kills, he makes he's like he makes sure to talk it through. You know why you're like in the very first episode. He's like, you know, why I've sentenced you to die. This is the law. Like he does it himself. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Like th- this is way more of kind of like devious behind the scenes. Like all right, we gotta you know, slip you a poison here or there or, or con you into de- killing your, you know, just some more subtle way of killing someone. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm going to be pretty interested to see how that continues. What, what happens with that arc? Yeah. Um, but that, yeah. So then we move on to Bran and the three eyed Raven and I'm trying to figure out what they're watching unfold. And so I'm like a tree lady made the, the <laughs> white walkers. What? what is that about? Like, and then it just stops there, you know? And, and she said that they had to, she said that they had to claim the throne because, or they had to do that because they needed protection from man, but then they created the biggest enemy of all by doing that essentially, which I still don't even know how, how bad news bears these, these guys are like, they are obviously, but as we're, you know, halfway through season six yet, they haven't really started to make their presence known yet as, I thought winter was here and it still seems to be coming. And now we're kind of in the middle. I don't know. We're kind of back on this as winter here yet. Cause it still seems to be okay in some places. I don't know. Still so that was a, <laughs> yeah. It's still coming, I guess. Um, so yeah, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know if you guys have anything to add on that, but that was just a quick scene of like, Oh, okay. So the ultimate, the ultimate enemy was created. It was, you know, it, you know, like I'm sure there's, I'm trying to think of another of a parallel, where like we kind of created our own worst enemy through doing something else. I don't know. Am I, can you help me out and think of like, a, you know what I'm saying? Well, I think so the, the tree lady, the children of the forest are some of the oldest creatures in this time, right? They, they kind of were around even before man was, and um, you know, they were, they're just, they're some of the, the oldest characters in this book and they, they were the ones that took care of we talk about the old the old gods and, and the you know the tree gods and stuff they took care of of the world and man came along and you know i think it, it, i i don't know anything about war, warfare like you know the uh technical things but at, at that point you know with their magical powers and with all of the things that they it was a great idea at the time it was a great idea for them at the time it was the only way for them to survive um, was to maximize their abilities and create a super a super threat, and they did not foresee that it would be something that. This is my opinion. They didn't foresee that it would be it would turn into this gigantic, power hungry monster that was created to destroy mankind, and that's exactly what it's doing. I yeah, I. Go I mean, ahead, it's probably Brad. no accident that they're cast as children, right? Like they portray this naivety. So like, mm. like they didn't have complete control of this magic. They didn't really know what they were doing. They hadn't thought things through. They were just trying to, desperate. you know, they were desperate. And they so to, to plunge this dagger into this man's heart um, seemingly was the answer. And it, it, it went awry on them, you know. Uh, so I think that just speaks to some naivety that. that I guess, was, yeah, I guess that goes with uh... – the most obvious one would be just nuclear war. We, the, the nuke, the atom bombs that were created in an effort to stop war is now like what's on everyone's edge that could end the world. Like, Hey, that cool. That stopped one war, but that's going to end up being the doom of us all eventually. Right. And put into the wrong hands and for the wrong reasons and for, you know, like, and who knows, like, uh, you know, the destruction of man was, was that achieved when they created these white walkers? Like, I, we don't know much. I think you have to read the books or prequel. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't personally know much about that specific history, except that, you know, obviously man thought that they wiped out the white walkers, but they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but they didn't. Spoiler. I, and I, <laughs> love this, I love this whole path of like divulging into the past, you know, going into the ancient past and then seeing all the, symbology that goes along with it the the spirals and that that symbol at the in the very very first scene in the first episode and how it all right and 
Um, I don't think they get into the trees enough. Like the trees are kind of cool, you know, with their little faces and probably their locations have some meaning, you know, how there's one in the God's Wood. Yeah, that's right. How there's, yeah, there are one in Winterfell and one, uh, North of the wall, you know, uh, but it's kind of neat. And then, you know what, first of all, where the hell was Bran and the crew for like a season and a half, right? And then all of a sudden, Dude, all of a sudden, we're Bran's back in the action. They're like, "Hey, I let's." Totally, that was it. Totally a... Forgotten about him, you know? Like, oh, they're back, you know? So that was another shocker to the season, you know? But uh, he's like, "I'm gonna go through puberty in private." That's right. Yeah. So yeah. Okay, he's a grown man all of a sudden. <laughs> we saw, yeah, we saw Sansa uh experience her period and lose her virginity in the most horrific way but bran we're gonna hide his wet dream and boners and we're just gonna and we're gonna see him you know let's let's embarrass yeah. sansa and live through her whores <laughs> but, but now hold on he is paralyzed from the waist down so <laughs> right. you're right he didn't get bone okay never mind anyway <laughs> there, so. nah you're right you're right good call <laughs> but i, I also love so once he's getting into this, uh, right, this history, the root history and learning from the three-eyed raven and seeing the story of his family and just going into the past, it's really just kind of fascinating to see sort of the, the prequel, the prequelization of sort of where the parts really started moving. Yeah, 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 yeah. <sighs> and then we get another really crazy scene when it shifts to uh, the Iron Islands. And I was just so excited i was like yeah yara claim the throne and then even better theon is is doing this and then i had a hold up moment like hold up who is this douchebag that walks up and it's the uncle um and he wants to team up with danny and he says he wants to give her his big cock and i'm like bro you don't know danny very well okay so that's not how she operates <laughs> and <laughs> and um whoa, 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 whoa. she's got all sorts of suitors and lovers and <laughs> she's taking it she's taking it she's getting it yeah, no, no, but you sh- you don't go demand it from her. You need to. You don't, you don't go, go just say. It. That's yeah, you don't demand from the mother of dragons. No, the mother of dragons chooses. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This guy, I think, is a little naive. Speaking of naivety, this guy, and then he took it. This guy won, and then in a very, very crazy scene of him, like, dr- like I guess to get their kings, they drown them, and then make sure if they're, they're only the strong will survive the drowning. I guess, right? Yeah. And then, the and then, right. And then Theon and Yara make an escape and they took the fleet. And I'm like, sweet. And then he says one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. He's like, build me a thousand ships. I'm like, hold up. How's it all? And so what? In 200 years, we'll be ready to go again. Like you don't have power tools. Like, and like a bunch of people left on those things. How many people are left in the iron islands and how much materials do you have? And it seems a little bit, I don't know why I got so nitpicky, but like, there's no way you're going to build a thousand ships in a year to go do what you want to do. Yeah, well, I mean, well, that just speaks to his absolute ego maniacal (laughs) stance. I mean, this guy is just untouchable, and he he thinks it, he knows it, he lives it, and I mean, he has no he's psychopath. He just he fits right in with the with the crew, right? He just no qualms, murders his brother, like throws him over, right? Like it's my turn. Truly hard to believe, but he's one of certainly become right up there with Ramsey, one of the most narcissistic and egomaniacal and uh, arrogant characters so far, right? So, I mean, this is the first time we met him, but, and it was interesting how he's like, you know, how Theon said, you know, where were you? Like, Yara was here leading and learning and, and, and going into battle. You were off gallivanting and he makes fun of him for using the word gallivanting, which I'm like, dude, you're Mm -hmm. stupid. But, he does use that to his advantage. He said, yeah, I might have been out gallivanting, but I was seeing the world and understanding it. And I have a better understanding of the way the world works. So now I'm better equipped to, to, to lead. And I'm like, ooh, that's a pretty good point. Yeah, yeah he played to the, are, are we tired of just being this, uh, you know, right. this downtrodden, beat down group of people? Or are we ready to take it by the balls and let's, let's do something about it, right? Right, right. Because that's Ironborn. I think we've seen through the lens of Theon and now Yara, who Yara is badass and she, you know, she deserves to be queen. And, um, you know, every feminist movement would, would love that. Like, it's just, it's, it would be such a smart thing. But I think we've kind of seen the Ironborn through the lens of a little more progressive type way with Theon, obviously also being 
a supporter of, of his sister for, for Theon to turn around and literally say, I do not want the throne. It belongs to my sister, you know, is, is a very progressive lens, I think for the ironborn and Euron comes in and really resets what true ironborn culture is. And it's take what you want and leave <laughs> zero fucks behind. Right. Like, uh, yeah. Yes. Not, not to get too political, but it's very reminiscent of like, everyone's like, oh, look at, we elected a black president, Obama. We're really getting progressive. And then the countercourse is like, nah, let's get Donald Trump in here and get the white, the tiki Green, torch wipers. Yeah. <laughs> let's do it. Come on. What, let's get back to our roots, guys. What are right. we thinking here? Right. Come and, on. And just how detrimental it, it, it is. And, but, you know, that's how, the, how the Ironborn have been. And it's like, so we'll see. I mean, is this change of leadership something that will reinvigorate them and give them some stamina, you know, some stamina to, yeah. to make a move? Or I thought it was so foolish of Euron to completely just get, like spill his guts on his plan. Cause it's like, where do you think Theon and Yara are going now? Yeah. yeah. His, but his plan, was- Euron's plan is going to work for about four years and then an older kind of decrepit guy is going to come and take over for him. That's my <laughs> prediction. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. That's a good. They're never going to finish building those ships. Uh, that's really good. They're going to, he wants to build a thousand ships, but he wants Marine to pay for it. Right. He right. wants the, all yeah, the, right. he wants everyone who he's going to conquer. They're going to pay for his ships. Yeah. Anyway. He's got it all figured out. He's going to win. Sorry. Right. He's going to win. <laughs> But we digress. <laughs> um, so now we flip over. Speaking of Daenerys, Jorah showing off his grayscale and confessing his love for Danny and leaving. But then Danny says, No, no, I command you to find a cure. And then you come back to me. I need you by my side. And I don't know what to make of this, of like this trope. Um, I'm starting to like, as I live my own personal life and, you know, just seeing this thing of if a man. And I guess the trope is usually a man going as hard as he can for a woman, but it doesn't mean you, a woman can't go as well. Like, you know, I think what we're learning more in today's society is like setting boundaries and old tropes of like, well, if she says no, just convince her, like, don't take no for an answer. I'm like, uh, no, you should. And this one just plays into that. Like Jorah, now it's not like he's forcibly forcing himself on her, but he just is not, he's not giving up his love for her until she's until she goes okay yes i do believe that you love me like where do you guys think on that idea of hollywood you know romanticizing this idea that if you love someone even if they're in love with somebody else or if they're ta- like true love conquers all no matter who gets spoiled it like you know what lives it ruins on the other side of it because your love is important you know what i mean i don't even think uh i don't even get the sense that jora thinks there's any chance that they'll end up together not even you know, she's not even even when she says, go cure yourself and come back to me. I don't think I don't think Jorah does. I just think it. I'm just saying like the um, the trope of that Jorah never gave up because of he was in love with her. And now he's removing himself. But she is saying, oh. but she she just goes, no, you you proved it. You've proved it like and almost like she's not saying that she loves him back, but she's saying like, I want you here. You've earned your way back to me. You know, Yeah, I guess, I guess he's yeah, he's accomplished that goal. Uh, well, and I think it speaks to kind of the timeless ask for whether it's romantic or really just relationships in general, you know, it's, it's that unconditionality. And I think what Jorah displays and what Daenerys has been trying to like, you know, she's trying to claim this queenhood and say like, I'm not going to take any, like you betrayed me. And if I take you back, that makes me look weak. And mm-hmm. she's sticking to that. But what 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 Jorah Jorah has no other motivation like yeah he's in love with her but he's also wholeheartedly dedicated to serving her um which encompasses so much of his romantic love but also familial love and fatherly love you know i think in every way possible he loves her um and and i think this was i think deep down she knew he would always return i think she knew part of that and and i think that's you know a little manipulative on her part i think Mm -hmm. um even if she is is surprised that 
I mean, of course he would go look for her. She got kidnapped. And of course he's going to go look for her. She relies on that. It lives within her confidence. Um, her confidence lies within knowing that there is someone who's always going to look for her. Um, but I think when she sees that his mortality is directly in their way, um, and it's no longer her choice. Now it's nature's choice and he's, they're almost out of time. And, you know, so I think, again, it kind of, she's able to play into that situation and say, and secure more of like, I know you have, you have to be there for me, even if I am like, you know, no, get away from me. You're stupid. Right. Like there's <laughs> manipulation in it. She knows how he feels about her and she's, she continues to use it. And what a tease. I, I think what? there's, there's a little, she bit is a that. massive tease. She is a massive tease, but it gives him hope too. Like he has nothing else to live for. And I think sure. so much of why we choose to love someone or why we convince ourselves to love someone, even if it's unhealthy for us is because we think that there's, there's nothing else for us to do. There's nothing better or there's no other, right. We, we kind of, surrender to this idea that like this person I don't have anything else if I don't have this this person or if I'm not working towards making my life you know so it's not a healthy relationship but <laughs> <laughs> no it's not <laughs> but in, in some way in some way yeah so then we flip over to Tyrion. He's talking and you know he says what kind of person can't be bought and then I just run out who the fuck is this now some other red another, like red woman's sister or something like that and there's some really interesting, this is really some of the meat of stuff that I was excited to talk to you guys about, where it's like, it's the role of a fanatic to always be right. Where it's like, I talked about this in my last episode or two episodes ago, where it's like, how do you, or maybe, maybe it was even my second, I think I talked about it with Zan, maybe. It was after Jon Snow woke up. And it's like, because the red woman was all in on Stannis until he died. And then now she's like, well, he was the wrong one. Like, but you said he was the right one. So it's a convenient for you to change your mind based on whoever is alive at the time, you know, and is that really, uh, you know, and how do you, when you're, and going back to the whole, you know, the make America great thing again or whatever that, um, how many people dig their heels in on any issue and it doesn't matter what evidence is pointed to them that they say, Nope, this is, this is it. And it's like, you, you're always going to be right on this. And I don't, that's just captivating to me. Like when can a human have the vulnerability to say I was wrong and now I'm willing to try something new or something like that, you know, because then it was, because this is coming back to always the Lord's will is what was another quote I wrote down where it's like, where they said, this is, this is the Lord's plan all along. Like whenever anything goes bad, you can just say, well, it was meant to be that way instead of just, you know, like I, I it just, there was so much, here. I, I'm done talking. I want to hear your guys' thoughts on this scene here and what was going on. No, you nailed it. It's, it's convenience. I agree. It's, um, the, the treasure and you know, the, the misfits go to the person, the highest bidder. And I think this speaks to, you know, the regional tension also, um, you know, this red woman is in Marine and she's on the Daenerys Targaryen bandwagon and everything she sees points to, Danny being the the chosen one and just as you know the red woman we've seen in the capital or you know in the um in the north thinks that everything she believes is pointing to the most convenient person at the time right um, so and I, I think we see a little bit of that with Melisandre kind of cowering like I don't know if you've noticed have you noticed the detail that ever since um Stannis died she wears a, a cloak she bundles up she's all bundled up now she's no longer like running around without a coat burning with the lord of light inside her like she's she's a little bit lost herself mm, so, i guess i didn't notice that symbolicness I'll, I'll need to pay attention to that and i think so, and this you know they're obviously a different climate so the marine red woman is not wearing a cloak obviously she has that and that's fine confidence. that's that's fine, by the way. She can continue wearing that <laughs> outfit. <Yes. laughs> yeah. She's. I, I wonder if, like, fanaticism and faith, they have something in common, right? Or they might even be, the words might be rooted in something, right? Because uh, it's just they, faithfulness. Um, and once you lose your faith or once you lose your 
once you start becoming wrong, then that whole identity, that whole iteration of that identity is lost, right? And then so you lose power and you lose anything you stand on, any ground that you stand on once you uh, are wrong. Well, that's why you, you or, know, the great, you know, the great, the great, uh, the great leaders have always evolved and changed and right. um, ma- made it made it what it what it should be. You know, uh, back to theology, if you know anything about Joseph Smith and but to their credit they're some of the great chameleons or evolvers you know they always um changed with the uh, social climate around them in order to survive you know uh they were I was great actually, fanatics you 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 took the words out of my mouth my dad told me a story that he was interested in uh dating a uh, a mormon in the 70s or something like that uh before my mother right and and he did some research into it and whatnot. And the Mormon church um, would not allow black people um, in the church, but black people could play for BYU football. So black students band together and said, listen, we believe in the word that you're saying. We believe in Joseph Smith. We're not going to play football for you anymore, but we want to be part of the church. And then God spoke to the head person and said, black people can be part of the church now. <laughs> Right. And, yeah. And also now drink Coca Cola. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no right. wonder it's such a cool religion. Yeah. <laughs> Those beautiful decrees have really worked well for them, and they still stand very strong out there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think fanaticism and faith are certainly right, and changing with the times. That, you know, where where it's like, you know, like well, gay marriage is not allowed um, in the you know. The Bible says this, and then now it's like, well, the, the, the Bible's meant to be interpreted, okay? That's not, you know, like people will say those types of arguments, too, where just change, like you said, changes with the times. I, th- I almost think like a, a lot of faiths need to be chameleon as progress goes, because if everything is stuck to the Old Testament, like, I don't think any of us are doing very well compared to what that was written about, right? right? You can even see this progressive Pope and with Christianity and, Christianity and Catholicism sort of uh, – seeding some of those those diehard uh you know mandates that they had in the past uh knowing knowing that that christianity and catholicism are really suffering you know yeah yeah you gotta adapt to the times adapt or die as uh as some uh someone said that i think i didn't yeah. say that adapt or die change or die well someone, yeah someone smart i think it's, it's interesting that you bring that bring it up to it because it's I mean, look at who the, this marine red woman is talking to. Varys, right? The, who, yeah, and Tyrion. Who and Tyrion, who do nothing. Who have their allegiance to so many different rulers. It's yeah, like, yeah. You're, you're spinning wheels. But I think from a theological sense, right, even to parallel with Christianity, it's like people get lost in the, in the semantics and in the um, yeah, interpretable yeah. details. But ultimately... And Varys is a really strong carrier of this underlying theme of what is best for the realm. I, mm-hmm. I'm choosing my allegiance based on what is best for, for the most amount of people um, because that's what he feels called and compelled to do. Which is clearly situational. It is based based on how people behave and, and what decisions are being made to showcase, you know, like what's what's being used to support and to create the most progress rather than tyranny. You know, Varys wants to be part of a, a, pro, a, a process that brings peace and justice and that serves the realm that serves the majority of people. And ultimately, you know, I think Tyrion has learned that that's kind of what he wants. I still don't think Tyrion just doesn't want to be killed at this point. And I think he thinks Daenerys is cool. I think she's kind of trendy. So he's like, yeah, she's cool. (laughs) But Varys is a really cool, steady thermometer. I think of like, that's, that's where people try to navigate. We can, we get all these different fanatical sects, but ultimately, you know, people choose to follow the things because they want what's best for the realm for whatever that means to them. Yeah. So yeah, that's whole, all I wrote at the end, I said that scene was super heady. Like what to even believe. It was, I, I was swimming watching that. I'm like, holy cow. A lot of well, yeah, campaign, there. campaigning. They're selling, it. They're selling yeah. it well. 
Yep. And then it flashes to the White Walkers that are scary. I'm like, I just like the the, the bouncing around the scenes is just like crazy sometimes. Yeah, and then I and then I got nervous. I'm like, wait, can they see him? And then I wrote, oh, holy shit! And then he and then he got touched. And now they're going to be attacked. And then so that was just a quick scene because then we cut to Sansa being bold, sending Brienne to River Run, which I don't like. I'm with Brienne. I don't want to leave Sansa alone. I want Brienne to stay with her. And then one of the funniest. One of the funniest things I've seen in Game of Thrones in a long time is when Tormund like has yes. this look to Brienne. <laughs> like, oh, man. oh, I love that. I love that. She's just so uncomfortable. She's like, yeah. Oh, my gosh. He just has this look. I'm just like, I want to see Tormund and Brienne. I would love to see that. That would be great. Um. And then I wrote, are they all going to River Run? But then when I read the Wikipedia recap, and I, oh, they're all going to different houses to try to form an army. So, like, right. they're going out campaigning themselves. Exactly. When you also see um, Sansa not tell John the truth at that yes, point. Yes, that's and- what I, you're right. And, and Brienne brings it up. She goes, we can, trust, we can trust John. And she's like, why didn't you tell him the truth? And I went, why didn't she tell him the truth? Well, what do you think? I don't know. I honestly don't know because she's, and we saw at the beginning, as you already pointed out, she's made a stand. She's like, you know, she stood up against the person who has wronged her twice horribly. And so why, and John, she, she's already proven in a couple episodes, her, she apologized to John. She said how horrible she was. Then she made John that cloak, you know, that, you know, that would remind him of, of Ned. Like, why wouldn't she tell him the truth? It could be shame. She could feel shame. Like, that she doesn't want to admit that maybe she's trusting Littlefinger a little bit. So she's just, I'm, I guess I'll go with that. She's shameful that she, she's going to trust him again, even though she said she wouldn't, well, but she knows that. Go yeah, ahead. Sorry, sorry, uh, she just, she needs to explore if that's really there because they need that army to beat. And so it's like her hatred for Ramsey uh, trumps her distrust and hatred for Mm-hmm. for for uh Bayless, and so she needs she needs that army more than than to be right no she doesn't want the army she doesn't want us to come to Littlefinger, you know having to rely on him again she's already been burned by that but she doesn't want seemingly if she told john well we have this army at our disposal but it has to do with uh Baelish being involved you know and she's afraid john's gonna say oh the answer to all our problems let's get him in and then he's you know in the circle again and that's the last thing she wants, right? Right. But I mean, she could have easily said, you know, Baelish told me, but I mean, I told him we want nothing to do with him. Let's just go take the army ourselves. Like leave Baelish out of it. Right. Well, I think that goes to show she doesn't know John as well as she thinks she does, you know, because oh. he would understand perhaps that. Of course you know, he would. You don't want to be involved with this guy. Uh, he did this to you. Uh, no, then we're not going to, we're not going to take his fealty. Um, she doesn't know John as well as she thinks she does, perhaps, you know? Yeah. You're or right she about knows that. him really well and knows that if she tells John anything, John's going to fucking kill Littlefinger. And oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's true, too. So I, I don't know. I have a little different theory of this. I think, I think Sansa trusts John. I don't think Sansa trusts Littlefinger all the way. Well, of course um, not. Total, obviously, she doesn't trust him at all, but I think she has learned his value. He is still very valuable in this game, and he's not valuable if he's dead. And if she tells Jon Snow how she used, got this information, he's dead. Like, okay. John will kill him um, for hmm. just, I, you know, just for out a thousand. Of honor and for, yes, for a thousand. Sure. Um, that's kind of my theory. I think that Sansa is playing this close because she's learned a lot from the people that she's been exposed to, including Littlefinger. And I think, I I don't think there's any kind of trust issue. I think this is like methodical in her own, in her own strategy. I think it's part, I don't think it has any, I think she trusts John enough. I I do agree that she doesn't know him necessarily as well, but I think she knows him well enough to know that if she shares everything that leverage that she has on Littlefinger is gone. She ha- she okay. has that piece to play over him. I disagree. I think this is our first fight. Oh no! You heard it here first. <laughs> yes! Oh man, you guys, your relationship was bonded through Game of Thrones and now you're fighting through it. <laughs> I'll 
consider. Um, (laughs) (laughs) To be continued. To be continued. (laughs) But now we get to the real the real deal of the show and really and I thought the other scene was heady and now I'm like, okay, what is even real now? Is all time happening at once? Right? Mm-hmm. Like so because this scene was like 10 minutes and it was visually like terrifying and scary. I wrote I wrote three things down and this whole scene. And it's very simple. I said, oh shit, they're here. And then I watched for a long time and then I said, all right, some self sacrifice both from the from the dog and from the little girl. Mm-hmm. And then I just wrote, holy shit, hold the door, dot, 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 hold door. Because it's like, okay, so how terrifying to know, like, as, well, I don't know. I, is everything happening at once? Like, everything that's already happened, like, you know, which talks about free will and that you could choose one thing, but if you choose that, that's already been determined that that's what you're going to choose. And you just go down a goddamn rabbit hole in your head. Like, what, uh, this was, I just sat there my jaw hitting the floor like what did i just watch here Dude, we should line this all out with like back to the future rules right like <laughs> if you uh the butterfly effect right. or whatever right um but seemingly that is that like it has been predestined right we actually went around a little bit and did some research uh regarding sort of the events when uh brand standing in the courtyard there and and uh seemingly makes eye contact with with uh Willis, right, Willis. in the, in the yeah. uh, courtyard and sort of what goes along with that, right? We uh, wondered, we asked if maybe uh, Willis or Hodor was a, uh, if he was uh, one of the, what do you call them? The wargs. The wargs as well, you know, he sort of had that, that, you know, he maybe, maybe he had not tapped into it and he was able to also shift through time, you know, but um, ultimately, what did we find, honey? Uh, well, we found that Bran. Oh, I, oh, he's talking to you. Sorry, he called, oh, um, oh, before yeah, you. Honey, 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 honey. Honey. So yes. I didn't. Sorry. Now, Brad, now you're not fighting. I didn't. Oh. Yes. <laughs> okay. Right. Know your pet name. Know your pet uh, name. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> All right, Lindsay, what's fine? Um, we found that Brand Brand messed up. Brand made a big mistake, and. Yeah. Um, Kind of part of his everything that has been happening in the cave is Bran's training. This three-eyed raven has been have has been training him for so long, and he kind of ventured off the path. He went with he went rogue, and something happened. He's not quite powerful enough, which allowed the White King to attach himself to him, which allowed a breakthrough to, to happen within this this downloading magic process. Like that was the one thing that kept the three-eyed raven protected was this magic that kept the what the white walkers out and and brand fucked up uh, and- is the raven like the giver like a cooler version of the book the giver you know like yeah, where you get yes, all, all, way, yeah. all the memories and and the knowledge and the magic and everything into one person yeah. absolutely and then telling him uh, what you're going to be when you grow up and those types of things absolutely yeah, yeah. So then, I remember reading the Giver real quick. I remember reading the Giver in third in seventh grade. Like yeah. this book's dumb. I wonder now if I went back and read it, I'm like, oh, this would be an interesting book. It just That's maybe thirteen year olds are caring way more about who's fingering who in the locker room than the Giver. And, and it's a pretty, it's a, it's a little bit deeper than that, certainly, isn't it? <laughs> okay, keep going, Lindsay. Sorry. This thirteen year old wasn't. Yeah. Wow. This thirteen year old was hearing about it, wondering, is everyone doing this? But now I know that it's not. A couple weirdos. Anyway. Um, I think the most impactful part for me and kind of what what I really loved about this episode and why I was so excited and honored to be able to talk about it with you um, was, and you hit on it earlier, was kind of this epic sacrificial theme, this underlying theme of, um, you know, the, uh, the dire wolf, <clears throat> the children of the forest, but ultimately Hodor giving his life to save Brand and knowing that he was going to do that. Right. Um, he got scared. Of that that like, this is my death now. This is, this is what it's all led up to. I knew that but, this day was going to come, right? That's what he thought. W- yeah. Or, you know, in the, in the cave, in that moment, we witness Hodor realizing that this is, this is it. 
um, because yeah. we then get the glimpse of, and I do think this is kind of where it's kind of controversial um, of like, if it's happening in real time, because uh, Mira is saying, Brand, you need to, you need to wake up. We need Hodor. We need Hodor right now. So because Bran is still in this like middle of downloading all this information, there's not enough time. He does not have enough time to learn the proper way to do this. He is connected in two realities. He's connected. Yeah. He's in two places at one time. And as Bran wargs into Hodor in the present where the White Walkers are coming and they're about to die, he wargs into Hodor in the past and he's watching what so the heartbreak is that he knows what hodor has to do and he knows the cost that ultimately bran is the one that that made hodor this way oh my god made him this way and led to his own death as well like he made him hodor made him a simpleton as well as made himself sacrifice for himself like he killed him twice essentially yeah right but what but what an amazing thing hodor could you know he stayed and he he did yeah. what he was supposed to do and he did it bravely and with courage and he never faltered once and i i think there's just something so i mean i'm getting emotional just talking about it, it was, it's such an emotional uh moment she's cried every time we watched it and she's cried every time she's watched it which is more than i have fingers on one hand it because <laughs> it's true i mean hey what hey i cry Sorry, every time I read uh, the seventh Harry Potter and right before Fred dies, where they, he makes a joke with Percy or Percy makes a joke and he says, like, you're joking, Percy, you're actually joking. I start crying immediately knowing what's about to happen. That's right. There's no shame in crying knowing what's about to happen. So, yeah. right. Right. And it's, um, you know, we, we get to, we get that reality. It's shoved into our face that holding the door is everything that Hodor was meant to do. <laughs> Ugh. when you say it and like that that gives me goosebumps it's Ugh. beautiful and it's tragic and it's you know he did it with honor and he never he held the door damn it <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry we, we were so in entranced by this whole self-sacrifice idea because as you said the the dire wolf and the you know the the tree ch child and and then hodor we had to we had to look at some other similar storylines and we came up with um uh, obi-wan kenobi in front of luke mm -hmm. uh, i mean jack oh yeah jack dawson on the titanic jack and rose and just how, jack and just rose telling that is and some of the the most popular storylines you know include that that sort of um selflessness and you know well dumbledore knew he needed to get murdered himself yeah it's it pops up in our uh well and we could tie it all we could really tie it all back around to jesus yeah right exactly absolutely, absolutely. Uh, like we for a little bit there i thought there was no such thing as altruism and in some ways there's not people are always um out to gain something or gain something from their selflessness you know but once you get down to that where you give the ultimate sacrifice like that perhaps that's like the only form of altruism you know it's it's insane that you're saying this because just three days ago i was driving back home from uh friday beers you know friday uh happy hour beers with a friend and he asked me is there such thing as self-sacrifice because when you do something good for someone else you do feel good you feel like you've helped them and we talked through it for about 15 minutes we kind of came to the conclusion we're not sure if there is any such thing as a selfless good deed yeah you get um, you showered with praise and you get a lot of recognition and well, Brad, you and me talked about like the side benefits of being elementary teachers as men. Oh man, we need more of you. Like, it's like, we like doing our job, but we'd be lying if we didn't like some of the attention that came with being some of the only men in our profession. It feeds egomaniacs like you and I, that's for sure. <laughs> Dude, me more than you, brother. <laughs> You're way more grounded than I am. You helped ground me. <laughs> that's why, <you're> so, man. <laughs> that's why I'm so what? That's why you're you're gorgeous. <laughs> oh, stop it! Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it, so, it ultimately comes down to you know there is whether it's for a good deed or whether it's knowing that if there's sacrifice and it there is a cost it it comes at a cost somewhere um, and 
you know, I, yeah, it's just, there's ultimately, I think to draw that kind of, it is the most, it is the most ultimate showcase of, of love and faithfulness, you know, that I think you can, you can have, you can to, to lay one's life down for a friend. That's also biblical. Um, in that way, like, I think that's why we gravitate to it is because we see and we view it as just the most epic thing you can do for someone. Um, or, yeah, or sacrifice. Yeah. It's, yeah. and it's it, like know. giving up one's giving up one's kidney for someone else. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, there was a for, lot of, uh, that wasn't, that's where I came up with my not so altruistic, uh, uh, all the, all the, uh, showering of attention that I was given, uh, you know, and I always said, oh, that, that gives me a great story to tell. So, Yeah, for, for, for my four listeners, uh, Danielle, Margo, Aunt Patty, Donald, <laughs> uh, Brad. Brad donated his, uh, his kidney to his, was it your brother? My brother, yeah. 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 And so, yeah, he, uh, and, and that's like, a, I, mean, it's a, I mean, it's not obviously the ultimate self-sacrifice, but that's a pretty big deal. But yeah, you were, you know, but how often I remember singing your praises and buying you beer. I'm like, dude, that's the coolest thing. I was so proud to be your friend in that moment. And so it's like, you know, you still got something out of the deal there because I wasn't the only I one I'm sure, beer. as you just said, you got a beer. I got one, one beer. So not, not, not all selfless. <laughs> got one beer. I do a lot for one beer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, yeah, this was a heady episode, uh, always around. Um, I was so thankful as I'm taking notes like this is Brad and Lindsay are the guests to have for this. This is great. Um, yeah. And we are going to start up a little controversy because actually Donald called this episode before you guys. Oh. And I, I kind of trumped Donald because Donald got the red wedding. He got what he wanted. And he also called a couple others. I said, I'm, he doesn't know that I've done this yet. I'm going to let him know. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to give him episode six. So he might see this episode drop and he may go, wait, what? <laughs> so <laughs> that'll be kind of funny. Donald, thanks, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry. Not sorry. A little bit. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks, do you guys have anything? Yeah. Do you have anything else to add to it or should, should I go watch this, uh, episode six? Well, I think just one more thing. We were, we were doing some research about this one, you know, cause we were getting deep into it and, uh, and I wish I had the article to credit this person, but it was a person who was giving commentary about how it really seems like there's a very feministic flair to the leadership, right? Like we talked about, um, uh, obviously, Yara. Daenerys and Yara, and it's seemingly they're seizing Sansa. this Sansa, right? They're seizing this power, but all in all, there really is that um, patriarchal, old-fashioned... Uh, uh, obstacles still in their way, you know. Uh, Yara gets uh, over overturned by um, uh, loudmouth uncle. That's right, by her uncle. Yes. And Sansa Sansa still there. needs to still needs Jon Snow's help and needs her uncle's help and needs yep. and still needs and and still needs Baelish, who she hates with all her bones. Mm-hmm. That's right. And Daenerys is she's you know she's uh, absent right now and. Um, Tyrion and you know he's making decisions for her at this point you know mm-hmm, so she yeah. still needs Jorah she still needs Jorah so because what would be if she still needs Jorah what would be better if we were can you continue with that is is if Missandei was making decisions rather than Tyrion right if Missandei right. was like no nope, now seemingly that you'd think that's who Daenerys might put it put in charge right if she knew anything, right but that's out of her control so um, right. yeah so it just it's kind of interesting we're seeing just these really strong women and you know, see, seemingly ones you can cheer for, but they still are at the mercy of these men in their lives. Um, Man, you know, what you po- poking what we saw. Sorry, there, I think the quote. Sorry, was, women. Yeah, yeah. Po- poking holes in the uh, glass ceiling, but not absolutely not breaking yet. through. Oh, yeah, that's a really yeah, that's a good way to. Yeah, dang. Yep, that's dang, yeah, you're right. That's it. Keep holding on, man. You've. Uh... I'm... We're, we're, we're going, we're going, we're, we're hitting okay, so some crazy exactly, stuff. Real quick, last, where are you at? Is <laughs> end up with the throne? Where, what's your, what's your, well, what's your brand? Brand is why I know, I know that that's one of oh. the, that's the, that's the biggest spoiler. I know, I know that brand already won. Oh, you had told us that. Uh, I did. Yeah. <laughs> so, but what's more fun for me is like seeing how it developed because 
Cause like you, like, like you said, like that John Snow thing really shook me. Like he should have won and now he died. So this is, this is what everyone's put. And now he's back. I'm like now, how does he not win? And this other stuff that's happening. So I'm more excited. It's, it's kind of like everyone, like why did the Titanic movie make so much money? Everyone knows it sinks. You want to see what happened. So it's like, I know what happens at the end. How did this ship go down? That's right. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of the lens I'm looking at it through. There's a lot that goes into it. And seemingly a a three-eyed raven, that doesn't make sense for a king, right? So. Right. Yeah. That'll be interesting to see what's going on here. Yep. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. I got to do my thrown out thing here. Yeah. So um, do you guys want to do some scat with me? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Go. Bump this Bacher throne now, Bacher getting compound, compound, compound. Uh, no one cares. It doesn't. <laughs> Thanks, guys. The, the, the baby's dance if she liked it. Oh, good. That's great to hear. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank, you, uh, <clears throat> thank you, guys. I'll talk to you later. <laughs>